with prayer. Oh, I need one of those, sorry. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us as we look to your word. Teach us by your Holy Spirit that we might know you and that we might trust in you. Amen. <clears throat> All right, well, uh, we are plugging along in Hebrews. We got a little uh, weighed down last time in a good way. Um, and we ended with verse 15. So just a, a short review. We're in Hebrews chapter 9. And in chapter 8, we hear this. Verse 1, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. This is the main point. He leads up to it. And now everything's going to come from it. Christ is the center always. Um, but now he's unpacking this for us. Uh, and he starts in chapter 9, going through the first covenant as compared to the second. Um, so he begins with all the structures in the temple. So chapter 9, you have, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. So you see already there's a distinction between the earthly sanctuary and the heavenly sanctuary. Uh, the tabernacle that is erected without hands and the tabernacle that was made with hands. Uh, so it's just good to keep those things in front of you, knowing that in the Old Testament, the shadow did its job. And that was to point to something that was not a shadow. Um, again, I, I really I love this image. And so I, I think it's worth uh, you know, sort of redigesting it. Um, what makes a shadow? Why do shadows exist? Light doesn't pass through an object. Light does not pass through an object. That's right. Okay, so then what is it? What? The object. Yes. And so it's the object, but what is it of the object? So, so we've, we've established there is an object. That you have to have an object, right? But now what? What else do you have to have? Light. Right? Yeah. So, so the object blocks the light or reflects the light, and then you have the shadow, right? Um, so then, what is the shadow really doing? Covering the light. Well, no, the object is covering the light. It's the absence of the light, yes. So what is it showing you? The shape of the object. The shape of the object. Right? That's the point of a shadow. And again, that's why I, I love these images, because if you can see the image, and this is why Jesus uses parables. Um, yes, it's to hide in the sense of those who do not trust Jesus and they don't want his explanation. But for us who have his eternal truths... They help to explain. And that's then what these shadows do for us. So when you read the Old Testament, don't just you know, go through and say, well, you know, <clears throat> this is a bunch of old stuff. I want the new stuff. But all of this in the Old Testament, what is it doing? 
that's like a shadow. What is it doing? What is the Old Testament doing that is the same thing that the shadow does? Yeah! And what is the object now? Christ! This is always the object. And this also is why Jesus is incarnate. Right? This is also part of this. That it is actually not just spirit, but God and man. They're always being pointed to. Um, Alright, so then what is the light? If, if the shadow is the Old Testament, Jesus is the object, what is the light? Yeah, it's God. You could say the Father, right? Um, so again, this is, it's just a good picture. Uh, all the analogies break down, so you don't want to take them too far. Um, but I think it helps to see, if you want to see the Father, uh, you can't look into the light, you look into Jesus, who is the proper reflection of that light. And that's exactly what Hebrews talks about. So, again, that image there, keep that in your mind as we're going through this. I think it will help you to think through it. Okay. Going back to Hebrews 9. Um, so, we, he goes through verses 1 through 5, telling you all the stuff that's in the tabernacle. And remember, it's all shadows, so what is it pointing to? It's pointing to Jesus. I, it, it, as much as uh, we, we say, oh, well, you know, that's the Sunday school answer. It's true. What's the answer? Jesus. It's always Jesus. Um, but now he's unpacking that. Right? So he's telling us, okay, uh, in, in verse 6. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. Okay, <clears throat> so now we sort of know this about the shadows. While the first tabernacle stands, what is not yet manifest? Yeah, the birth of Christ, Jesus himself. He just hasn't come yet. Right? And he is coming. And so all these shadows are pointing to what is about to be. And even the high priest himself is the shadow showing that there is a greater tabernacle in which we will enter. All right? So, now, finally, we arrive at verse 11. Uh, and then, I didn't want to get into this last time, but this is where we're going to dig into this idea of a testament. What is a testament? Uh, so verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. All right, so what is the greater and more perfect tabernacle? Jesus himself. And he says that, right? This is in John chapter 2. Uh, this temple will be torn down and I'll raise it in three days. Of course, they don't understand how can you do this. It took us 40 years. And then the text tells us but they did not understand that he was talking about his body. He is the temple. So then we must enter him. And again, this sort of sounds strange because we're not used to it. But we are. 
Because what happens in marriage? The two become one. Another mystery that we live every day. It is it among us. The two become one flesh. And yet they're two persons. How can they be one if they're two? And so here we see Jesus wants to bring us where? Where does he want to bring us? If we're united to Jesus, who are we united to? God. He wants to bring us into God himself, into the communion of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the only way is in the new tabernacle, which is Jesus. So, uh, verse 12. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. Um, by the way, I looked up the red heifer thing. <laughs> um, so they would burn this heifer. And then the interesting part is uh, they, they would burn the whole thing and then they would use it in the water of purification. So they would combine the water and the ashes. And then when you would transgress any of these commands, that would be the water, that water that was mixed with the heifer, the ashes of the heifer. And then that then would be what purifies you. Yeah. Now, now that, that sanctification was specifically for the high priest. This is how the high priest was dedicated. Uh, so it really fits with this, this thing. And by rabbinic tradition, I think I read that God provided like two or three of these red heifers because they had to be perfectly red without any impurity on the nose, on the hoofs, and all of it. And, and back in the 2000s, you heard about some Scandinavian scientists trying to breed a red heifer. And, and that's part of the, the uh, Israel's wanting to reconstruct the temple and temple worship, they have to have a red heifer to have a high priest. Mm. And so you, every once in a while you hear about them trying to breed a red heifer, but they can't because God won't allow. So. Right, right. Well, and, and, uh, and, and what then is the image? If, if that's the shadow, how does Jesus fulfill it? Where do we see that imagery of water and Jesus? Baptism? And then on the cross. Yes, and what is it on the cross? And they pierced him. Yeah, the water and the blood, right? So he starts with the water as in his baptism, and there he is anointed. He begins his mission, and then, of course, the water no longer flowing from the Jordan, but flowing from Jesus. So he then becomes the cleansing of our sin. All right, so for the blood of bulls and goats, the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. 14, how much more should the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serving the living God? Uh, okay, also on this note, um, what I found, I think, the best way to see this is this is the Trinity. So in, in verse 14, you have a picture of the Trinity. Who are the persons? If you were to point them out, who are the persons of the Trinity in verse 14? Christ. So Christ, yeah. So we have him, right? He's the Son. The Eternal Spirit. Who's that? Holy 
Yep. Yeah, you got God. Yeah. So he offers through the Holy Spirit to God the Father. This is a wonderful Trinitarian passage and should remind us that the Trinity is always working together. It's not as if the Father sent the Son and he's like, okay, Son, hope you have a good time on earth. And uh, you know, we'll, re we'll resume our meetings together when you send the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's not what happened. Because you notice that once the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus, when is the next time the Holy Spirit moves away from Jesus? Yeah, or moves from him, or I shouldn't say moves away from him, but um, what, he comes on Jesus, and then what? That's sort of an image, but then does he ever leave Jesus? Well, and, and on the cross, he also breathes out. You know, he gives his last breath uh, for our sake. And then the Holy Spirit comes down when? Pentecost, right? So then we are anointed as those in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is always united with Jesus. So again, it's that yo-yo I talked about. You know, the Father sends the Son, the Son, the Holy Spirit. But that's the, he doesn't, they're not independent. They're working together. Right, so the Holy Spirit pulls you where? Into the Son, and the Son to the Father. Right, so that's that's the, this is the activity of the Holy Trinity, always working in unity and yet with difference in person. So, did the did the what did the Spirit do here in verse fourteen? What's his unique job? Well, that's he does do that, but but here, what is it? Yeah, he brings. So so the Holy Spirit's job is to through the Holy Spirit, uh, offering it to the Father, right? So the Holy Spirit makes that connection, okay? Um, and then of course, what is God the Father's role as a person? What does he do? Once the Holy Spirit brings the sacrifice to the Son, what does the Father do? He cleanses our conscience. So the Father does it because the... So Jesus dies, sacrifices himself. The Holy Spirit brings the sacrifice before the Father, and the Father, because of the sacrifice, cleanses us of all our sins in the blood of Jesus. So they're working together. This is the constant activity of the Trinity, uh, is that they work together. Okay. Um, Plus, it so, cleanses their lives to serve the living God, right? I mean, it's, well, of course, right? If your conscience is clean, this is what Paul says, you know. Uh, should we sin more that, sin, that grace may abound? Of course not. We've died to sin. To have a clean conscience is not so that we can go do bad stuff, but so that we can live in holiness granted by God. And when we sin, is there still a sacrifice for us? Yes, and so far as we bring it to God, he cleanses us continually until we die. As long as we have this, as Luther would say, this flesh bag, this maggot sack around our neck, we will carry the blood of Christ with us that covers us. All right, uh, verse 15. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. All right, so there's the newness again. The New Testament 
um, by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. So notice, what's the relation of the first covenant? What does it do? Yeah, it shows sins. It's still doing a job. The job of that First Testament and the law is to show us our sins. But now, what does that drive us to? Yeah, it drives us to Jesus. He brings the New Testament. If we remain in the First Testament only then we will remain without death for our sin and therefore we will remain in our transgressions. But if we see this and we see, ah, okay, yes, the first testament, the law condemns me and now what do I have? The new testament, the second testament, because there is a second testament so that we can wholeheartedly agree with the first testament and say, yes, these are righteous and good and from God. But now I participate in them through Jesus. And there's no other way. Okay. Um, and this is the best part at the end. That those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So that's, that's where we ended last time. So this is, sometimes we Christians, uh, you know, it's, it's easy because our flesh likes that and the world always puts it in front of us. Um, that, you know... I mean, there's a lot of other good stuff in the world, right? Uh, you know, nice house, or my family relations are finally, you know, going better now, or, you know, that person that's sick is healthy now. But compared to eternal life, what is that? Nothing, nothing can give you this. But that's, again, the deception of the flesh and the deception of the world, and Satan will continue to deceive you and say, what is that? What are you waiting for, Christians? You could have it now! So, we have to remember that this is the promise. And we're clinging to a promise. And now, what, what is the thing about a promise? What is a promise? Something that someone gives their word that will happen, but it hasn't yet happened. Yeah! He gives his word that it will happen, but it hasn't happened yet. And that, then, is what we have. God tells us, you have eternal life, but we keep dying. Come on. That's the point of the promise. And that actually affirms the promise. It doesn't deny the promise. Because what happens now when we die? We're, yeah, we finally put off the maggot sack, right? And we're with God. And then that maggot sack will no longer be called that anymore. Because on the last day, what will happen to it? Rise from the dead. And our body will be like Jesus. And there will be more, no more maggots. There will be no more stench. It will be clean. All right. So, uh, jumping then into why a mediator. Okay, what's, this, what's this mediation that's happening? Verse 16. For where there is a testament, there must also, of necessity, be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Okay? So this is, this is the nature of it. And you've got to love Paul. I think Paul wrote this. Um, you've got to love Paul. Who he, This is the testament. Right? Uh, and, and, and the nature of it is, 
You have to die, and once you die, then it is effected. So, verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet, and wool, water, scarlet, wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purged with blood. And without the shedding, without shedding of blood, there is no remission. All right. So a testament is that promise uh, that after death, it all will be fulfilled. So how do we... Well, let's put it this way. Uh, how does Jesus put his blood on us now? How does this happen now? Yeah, right, that's the obvious one, right? It's body and blood right there, right? We eat and drink it. All right, so what else? Baptism, yes. We're clothed with Jesus, uh, sprinkled clean with that water. What else? There's one more. The Word. And, and, and this one we should not forget because this is the one that empowers all the others. Because the Word of the Testament is what makes it effective. So baptism is nothing. Nor is the Lord's Supper without what? The Word. And why does that Word have any power at all based on this? That Word is a Testament. Why does it have power? Yeah. Yeah. So then all of it then relies and is solely powerful because of the death of Jesus. This is why it is a historic reality. Uh, th this was uh, one of the things at Symposia uh, that I went to this last week. Uh, you know, a lot of people deny the historical reality of creation. And in doing that, they undermine the historical reality of Jesus. Because, why should we think that anything in Scripture is actually history? And yet, it is important that it's history because we are not cleansed by some eternal thought of God that we cannot see. But here, we are cleansed by the historic body and blood of Jesus coming into that body and blood the day he was born and actually living and actually dying. But here's the other thing. Uh, where, where is Jesus' body now? In heaven? Good. Where is the right hand of God? Everywhere. It's everywhere. Because where is God? Everywhere. So where is Jesus in his body? Everywhere. Everywhere. And again, this is the same flesh and blood body, but because he is fully God, his Godness allows him to do all things with that body that he has that God can do. So his physical body can be everywhere at once. And that is the, the joy that we have, that Jesus in body, 
really is with us at all times and dwells in us and stays with us. And that he is able to cleanse us with his blood, and it's his real blood, although uh, we may not be able to see it, it is united with the word. So here we see it's a real death, and then a real sprinkling of his blood, all because it's a testament. All right, jumping to verse 23. Um, Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. All right, so this, this helps us understand where he's going. Where is Jesus, where is he taking his sacrificial death? What is heaven? What's the definition of heaven here? Don't think too hard. God's kingdom. Y- yes, God's kingdom. Um, but, but what about in this text? Where, where, what is it defined as? The presence of God. That's it. This is heaven. And this is what he enters into. And many times, we'll, maybe you've heard this saying before, the beatific vision. We will see God with our eyes. This is Job's great confession. That with my eyes and not with another, I will see God. For now we see in a mirror darkly. Then we will see fully. So here... We have the word, but Jesus enters before the presence of the Father, which no one could do. Why can we not enter the presence of the Father? Why can't we enter heaven by ourselves? Because we'd be burned up. Yeah, we'd be burned up. Right. Because we cannot enter into the presence of a holy God without dying. Why would we die? Sin. Sin. And this then, I think is why we struggle because um, we don't... It's easy for us to shirk off sin. To say that sin doesn't matter, right? Um, Now, again, um, sometimes we wish God was like that, you know, indulging father who says, that's all right, son. Don't worry about it. He doesn't do that. He is just. And because he is just, there must be a punishment for sin. Because if you let evil continue, you are evil as well. So if we have a God who says evil is okay, or I'll just look the other way, he has become evil. And he is no longer just but crooked and walks in the ways of wickedness. And we should run because then God has become the devil. But God is just. So he has to do something with sin. And this is the greatest thing about it. Is what does he do with sin? He puts it all on Jesus. This is the miracle of the atonement. Um, that Jesus took on flesh, and in that flesh was able to die, and yet he was also God, and so therefore he could take all sin on himself. 
and die in our place. And now is able to grant us his righteousness. And what what an amazing thing. So then, if we want to appear before God now, there is a way that is now open. What is it? Jesus. And doesn't he say that? What does Jesus say about himself? I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We've been talking about that now. Through, through Jesus. Because he's the mediator, and he brings us into himself. And this is why Jesus is also the picture of marriage. For the two will become one flesh, and Jesus is the bridegroom, and we are the bride. We come through Jesus to the Father. And now he's unpacking this. Okay, so Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, but into the presence of God. This is heaven. Um, Okay, 25. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. Now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Okay, I don't know... I don't know how you could listen to this once and truly unpack everything. I mean, if you're, if you're part of this congregation, you know, you're just like blown away. You know, <laughs> all right, I can't unpack all this. But there's so much in this one verse. First, um, what does it mean about Jesus' death uh, that he didn't, have to, he didn't have to die often from the foundation of the world? What does it mean about his death? That it was a perfect Yes. And where does it go back to? The foundation of the world, right? So this sacrifice is the one that echoes into the foundation of the world and cleanses even that. That's why he is a new creation, a new Adam. He doesn't say that just as nice picture language. He establishes it in his very body. So that now what he's doing is creating us as new men and women in his image, perfected by God, by his sacrifice. Okay, so he would have to suffer often, but he doesn't. He suffers one time. Oh, and what does this mean about the Old Testament faith? What did they really believe in? Jesus. They had to. There is no other sacrifice. So then... The problem, and this is why you hear these strange passages in the Old Testament. I'm not pleased with your sacrifices of bulls and fat. Take them away from me. I'm tired of them. Now, that was not, he was not saying you're doing it wrong. They did it the right way. They followed the rules. But what did they not have? They didn't have faith. Because what, would their, what was their faith supposed to be in? The word which delivered what? Jesus. Jesus. Delivers Jesus. Because this new covenant, although it is manifest in Christ, it saves all those even before it was manifest because they looked forward to Jesus coming. And they knew these were shadows. They knew these things would pass away. And that's why Moses, while he comes down off the mountain, says, One greater than me will come. 
Now, if, if the Jews at that time were thinking the same way that the Jews in Jesus' time were thinking, they should have stoned Moses for saying that. Why? Why would they be upset if Moses said, a prophet will come after me? Why would, why, why would that be bad? Yeah. 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 He's saying there's something more to come and that if I do all this law, I'm not going to be saved. Because all these things are copies. He even calls them copies. And they cannot cleanse your conscience. So then we have to beware that we do not put too much freight into doing right actions, even though they may be great copies and pictures. The liturgy does not save you. Although it contains the things that do, it contains the Word of God. But our way of doing things, whether that be that we um, <clears throat> uh, put the curie at the end or the beginning, or whether we uh, you know, cross ourselves or not, that would not save you. Because only one thing does. Jesus. So that's why we can treat these things as what they really are. They're wonderful pictures that point to what we believe. Now, inasmuch as the liturgy contains the word of God, it delivers Jesus. So don't mistake me. Um, but we must caution ourselves as well uh, that we do not put our faith in our liturgy, but in Jesus, and that our liturgy gives us Jesus. That was the problem in Luther's day, is that they had put too much stock in all the prayers and all the ways they were doing things, so that Luther can say, the monks all day bawl at God with prattle. Why? They were singing the Psalms. Why would, why would Luther say that these monks who are singing the Psalms are prattling? No faith. No faith. So that the faith of a child was better than a monk who said seven prayers seven times a day. And the reason why is faith. Yes, that's it, that's it. And as much as we put these works in front of Jesus, who is then, who becomes the cleanser of our souls? If we put works in front of Jesus, we are. And that was their problem. Okay, so, so then it's the same faith from the foundation of the world, the Old Testament looking to Jesus, the New Testament founded in Jesus. Yeah. I was wondering, do you see any implication in 26 of the, of the other Reformation principle of the sacrifice of the Mass? Yeah, yeah, that's right. By the sacrifice of himself. Yeah. But I mean, in the Catholic Church, they, they teach that Christ is sacrificed over and over again by the priest. Yes, right. Right, yeah. And, and this then, this principle... Going back to the monks itself, um, that's why they could have private masses and no one had to be there because they were sacrificing Jesus. So you didn't, no one had to be there for it to be effective. Um, but this, so this, in this one passage, you can eliminate this idea. We do not re-sacrifice Jesus. He is sacrificed once and then we get the benefit 
of his sacrifice. Um, okay, here, here's another uh, tidbit. Okay, but now, once at the end of the ages. So what time are we living in? The end of the age. These are the last times. Uh, so many have come now and tried to predict, you know, well, now is the last time or this is the last time. We are in the last time. And the only thing left to happen is what? Second coming. And at that coming, what will be different than when Jesus came first? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's number one. Everyone knows. Every knee will bow. What else is different about it? That's, that's a, yeah, that's a really good one. Yes, he comes in glory. Yeah, and, and so we will then see not the humble Christ in one place, but the Christ who is now exalted. So he will use all his power. Right? Yeah. So then the kingdom of grace will become only the kingdom of glory. So there's something else that's missing. What? Yeah, both of you said the same thing, but differently. You said the sheep and the goats, you said it's coming judgment. And that, that then is the difference. Because now is the day of what? Grace and repentance. So now is that time. When Jesus comes again, there is no more time. Repentance is over. And grace is done and complete. Because all who would come, God has gathered to himself. So then, what's left is only the separation. So this is the difference then. When Jesus comes again, there's no new revelation. There's no new things that we're going to learn about Jesus. And that's what we must be cautious of, to think that, well, somehow, he's going to reveal something new. There's nothing new. This is the last. And the only testament that is left. Uh, and this then is the only thing that can save us. Now, um, I... What church body would deny that? No new revelation. What? Well, that, yes. Oh, that's true. In America, we have two groups like this. The Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, right? Uh, but the Mormons, even, even more so. Why, why would you say they, they say there's, um, they deny that this is the last testament here? Right, right. Well, how are they founded? Yeah, it's the new thing that Joseph Smith saw. He had a new revelation from an angel, right? And we would know immediately if we read this passage, it's untrue. Jesus is the last testament. There's no more. Nothing to be added. Nothing to be taken away. Okay, what, what other church body does this? New revelation. Okay. Yeah, how so with the Seventh-day Adventists? That's a, you, you're, you're beyond she had, me. She had prophets. She had visions and prophecies. Oh, yes. And I would say the whole charismatic movement, right? Um, so Pentecostalism today deals with the continued revelation of the Holy Spirit to every individual. So then there's lots of new things that Jesus reveals. Um, and, and we are then in continual communion with the Holy Spirit, and this testament keeps on going. I mean, there, there is no last testament. This, it's always a new um, and what's the danger in that? 
What's the danger of a constantly new revelation that never stops? Forgetting the old promises. Yeah, you forget the promise of Jesus. Right? What, what's, what's he there for now? To give you new revelations? He is the last and the greatest and the completion of all revelation of God until the last day. Uh, there's one more. Islam. No. Christian. Christian denomination. Yeah, Islam. That's, uh, well, yeah, that's true though, right? Because Muhammad had his... You're right. You're right. Well, these false things and false religions come up this way, right? There's been a new revelation. I had it in the cave. It was really hot in there. And, uh, but now uh, we have Islam based on a new revelation, right? Um, but also the Catholic Church does this. Um, so this is, this is the point of them having uh, the Pope on the seat and continually speaking. And you will, you will be surprised if you read some of their literature, I'm sure, um, but they do not believe that the Bible is the end, that this is the only Word of God. They, they take the passage of John 16 that says, the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth, and they take that to mean there's going to be a continued revelation and the Pope will tell you what that is. This is why they put so much emphasis on the church. Um, uh, and, and it's why they, they sort of live or die by that principle as opposed to living or dying by the word of God that is Christ. Um, okay, so that's the end of all ages. And he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once for all. So, where is all sin? Where is all sin? It's been abolished. Yeah, on the cross. Dead with him. Now, does that mean unbelievers also? Where is their sin? On Jesus, right? But the problem is what? They don't believe it. So they would take their sins back from Jesus and die with them. And that then should help us to use great humility when we speak to all people. Because their sin is in the same place as ours. And they have the same promises. We have no pride. Our only pride is Jesus. And we glory in Him. We're not proud because we know these things, although we should be glad that we know them. But instead of being proud, what should we do for the person who doesn't know this yet, that their sins are in Jesus? What should we do for them? What? Tell them. Tell them. Tell them. We should let them know. We, we, this is, Jesus does this amazing thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he... He, he starts preaching the, um, the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are those who... And he goes through all those, right? But then he says this strange thing. He says, you are the salt of the world. Why does he say that? You are the salt of the world. You are the light. Why does he say that? Connected to Christ. Yeah, Right. He is the light. So the only way I can be the light is if I have Jesus. And therefore, we, as we go forward in all our vocations and all that we do, we preserve the world and we enlighten the world simply by being Christian. 
All right, last verse, and then I'll be done. I know, we're over. <clears throat> All right. Um, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment... Hey, we already went through that. Um, verse 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So we've already sort of gone into that. Um, but the, the, So then the motivation and the wonderful joy is that our life does not end here. We are prepared for salvation. And that's the great part, is that every day of our life, we are not counting towards the end, but the beginning. Because the salvation has been won and been granted to you, and now will be revealed to you. Uh, and, and again, this is why we Christians can always rejoice in every affliction, in every tribulation, because what do we know? In all our afflictions, in all our pain, what do we know? Yes, number one, God's with us. But, but what else? We are saved now, and that's sort of God is with us. But there's, there's something else that should season our suffering with joy. What? He already bore it, yes, yes. And someone said over here, it's temporary! Paul says in Romans 8, Rejoice or take pride in your suffering. For suffering produces endurance, endurance character, character hope. And hope does not disappoint. And that's what we have. And it's certain. Jesus said so. That's the promise. He died for that. So let us pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you have given us your only Son to be our true sacrifice. Help us to have the joy that our salvation has been given to us and that it is on the way. And help us wait with patience, having full hope, knowing that you bring the end of all suffering and pain. You wipe away all tears for the sake of your Son. Amen.